Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today is part two of our discussion of Kate Millett's sexual politics, and I'm super excited to welcome back to the show my illustrious reading partner, Maxine Hanks. Thanks for being here again, Maxine. Oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun. I, I, I'm wishing that I had joined your podcast sooner. I wish I'd been here from the beginning, but um, I'm loving it. So oh. you, you are fabulous. Thank you. You are fabulous. I I can't tell you how much it means to me to have you here. I I feel like you're a Joan of Arc within Mormonism. I've known who you are for a long, long time, and I just feel so honored to have you here. And then our last episode was just so, so helpful and illuminating for me, and I'm sure for listeners as well. Um, So listeners, if you haven't listened to our previous episode, part one of Sexual Politics, make sure you do that because it really does help to set the stage for the um, passages that we're going to be sharing today from Kate Millett's work. It really was helpful to get that context of 60s and 70s feminisms and um, the discussion that was happening at the time. And I, I particularly really benefited from your discussion of um, kind of who the men were of the new left and and people who ideally would have been these feminist allies in you know re-envisioning what the world can look like with more justice and equity and and really that kind of context helps me understand why she took on Mailer and um, D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller and these these authors because they were kind of the the elites at the time and the people who were kind of determining the the conversation in on the left and she was you know showing what despicable misogyny was was in their work right in this respected work so i i so appreciated that context um, sure yeah you know i wanted to toss in one thought too yeah. it also helps to explain which which biographers and researchers have have revealed more in recent years the situation Marilyn Monroe found herself in. And of course she was connected with Norman Mailer. Oh yeah. I mean, Marilyn, whom Gloria Steinem has treated as in many ways, an incredible feminist and strong figure who was very damaged by Mm. the violent uh, misogynist sexism of the sixties, fifties and sixties. You know, it really helps to unpack and understand what Marilyn Monroe was dealing with and her response and, and giving a whole new perspective on her. Wow. You know what? I knew I had heard the name Norman Mailer before, and I didn't know where until you just said that. And it's, it's with Marilyn Monroe. Was she married to him for a time? She was married to Arthur Miller. And she was married to Arthur Miller, who was another incredibly sexist (laughs) Mm. writer. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was a very abusive relationship. Norman Mm. Mailer wrote about Marilyn. Um, He wrote a biography, a novel biography. Uh, But his, he's, um, he's, he's known for sort of describing or, or, or interpreting her Mm. in a way that reinforced the terrible situations that she was dealing with. It was just a very sexist view that has been unpacked by feminists. Okay. Okay. Well, that, I mean, I'm, I'm revealing my ignorance here, but um, I didn't off that when I, when I read that she was taking on Mailer, I thought, I know I've heard that name, but I didn't know why. Yeah. And and now I know I remember. Yeah. Why. He wrote the famous biography of, of Marilyn, okay. which, which, which again, you know, colonized this amazing female icon who who was 
embodying so many aspects of not only women and womanliness and sexuality, but also feminism. And Mm -hmm. he was, you know, he wanted to, in a way, his biography kind of colonized her. Wow. Um, well, thanks for that. That's, that's fantastic. And again, just helps with, with more context because this was happening, that was happening at the, at the same time too. And we Mm -hmm. haven't even mentioned her as a figure Mm -hmm. in all of this, but so we're going to share some themes and some passages that we thought were important as usual. And I want to start by taking a look at the very beginning of the book. I mentioned before that I was really shocked and quite horrified when I opened the book because it was not what I expected at all. Um, not something that I would like hand to my kids and read and say, hey, read, read about feminism. Um, so listeners should know that. But she opens the book with some very long quoted passages from Henry Miller's book, which is called Sexus. It was published in the 1940s in Paris, but it was banned in the United States because of anti-pornography laws. And usually I'd be like, oh, it was probably like just Victorian prudery that banned, you know, what they thought of as porn. But no, that's actually pornography. Like I read it, I was like, whoa. So I was quite horrified. Um, And because I didn't know who he was, I thought that maybe... Kate Millett had just dug up some scummy author who wrote violent <laughs> sex scenes or something. But then I was like, oh, no, he's like a really well-known and respected elite author. And so I was reading, I, I had to read a bunch online to just kind of like get my bearings. And I just read some some like recent reviews on Goodreads. And there were tons of people talking about what a genius he was. And I'm just going to quote one kind of representative quote. So this is from a man reviewing Miller, re- reviewing Miller's Sexist, this very book that, that Millet quotes. So this guy says, quote, some of Miller's most inspiring writing, I think. This is the kind of book you want to come with a highlighter so you can remember where those amazing passages are to quote again and again. That said, it's not for everybody, especially prudes end quote. And so again, like that's when I read that, I was like, okay, this is why Millet took on Miller because, you know, some literary critics praised Miller for his artistry and his genius. And he was celebrated for his courage in breaking literary boundaries and talking about sex so explicitly. And then there were some people who criticized his obscenity. And so there's like all of these various aspects that they're discussing, but it seemed like nobody was talking about those passages from a woman's point of view. And nobody was talking about how degrading and misogynistic those scenes are. So it's like, oh, is it is it appropriate? Or like, he's breaking these boundaries so bravely or no, actually that's obscene, but they're not saying, no, it's like violently um, anti-woman. So I mean, yeah, on one level, I guess I would say I'm a prude because I did hate the chapter and I found it super <laughs> offensive for like multiple reasons. Um. But I would, I mean, so yeah, again, just kind of like a content alert to listeners. Like if you want to read it, just be, just be aware that that's what you're going to find. But now I understand why Millet did it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I, I share your revulsion at, at his writing and I, and I'm not a prude. (laughs) I grew up in the the 60s and 70s, you know, (laughs) seeing violence and, and sexism and misogyny on TV and in culture Mm -hmm. and, um, kind of been through all those wars and battles, but uh, yeah, she takes on Miller because he's the epitome. His writing is just the epitome of misogyny and the leftist men. 
So she, she picks those three authors, um, Lawrence and Miller and, um, and Mailer, because they typify and, and as better than anyone, the, the epitome of the misogyny and violence toward women in the writings and, and attitudes and views of the leftist men who were supposed to be women's colleagues in the radical deconstruction of oppressive social systems. Yet these men hadn't even realized or bothered to care <laughs> that women's mm-hmm. bodies and the sexual imbalance of power between men and women were the very foundation of those oppressive systems. So mm-hmm. here they were in their writings, supposedly undoing those oppressive systems, and they were reinforcing the subjugation and the abuse and rape uh, of women in their work. And and Kate, who was a sane human being (laughs) sort of said, what, wait a second, Mm -hmm. there's something wrong with this picture. Why am I seeing this? Why are other people not seeing it? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's always been a feature of, of literature, you know, to push the boundaries and go into the pornographic or the macabre or the violent or the dark, you know, I mean, one of the roles of literature is to explore the human shadow. And so that's, that's a valid thing to do in literature, mm-hmm. but there's also an issue of sort of how you do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and there are women on both sides of this Camille Paglia, who's an incredibly prominent feminist writer and critic, ha, you know, criticized Kate Millett and her book as, as overreacting and, mm-hmm. and being obsessed with the, the, the sex in the, the books and, and, you know, not, not really understanding, you know, what, what Miller and the others were trying to do and that, you know, and that Kate and women like her are upholding this, this sort of overreaction to the, the role of the shadow and the dark in literature and and the right of men to express, you know, everything, including the most primal sexual desires and, and fantasies and habits. So, you know, there are women on both sides of that issue, but but men like Miller, who who was kind of um, sex obsessed in his writing and deeply sexist, were, uh, you know, on the one hand, opposing or trying to oppose every oppressive norm in society except the sexual abuse of women, which mm-hmm. way, which they were exploiting themselves in their work. Mm-hmm. And and Kate was appalled and offended, and I am so grateful to her for targeting that. And, and, and letting people know what is wrong with this picture, you know, and there are times I agree with Camille Paglia on a number of issues. And there are times I radically disagree with her. This is one of those times, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really agree with Kate Millett and what she was doing. Um, you know, the men were completely dismissing women's perspective a lot of the time in the movement anyway. And, and, um, and still seeing women as sexual beings and sexual objects first, rather mm-hmm. than as colleagues. Mm-hmm. So so Miller and Norman Mailer and Lawrence, men like them, they, those abuses of women in their work really needed to be refuted. Otherwise, Kate and other feminists knew they weren't going to succeed at their double task, double duty of, of undoing female oppression in the larger culture, you know, and finding new language. And at the same time, fighting the, the only colleagues they had in the mm. battle, you know. Um, and, and Kate though, you know, she contrasts these really sexist, violent writings about women with the, the neutral role that 
that Jean Genet, um, the male writer, the, the French uh, male writer in his work. Um, and which was important because she wants to be fair. She wants to say, look, you know, I really appreciate the the work of some of the men in the new left. I'm not against all mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And, but she makes the point of, of saying when she contrasts Genet with, um, with these other writers that unless the real or fantasized uh, virility is abandoned, unless the clinging to male supremacy is a birthright, is finally foregone, all systems of oppression will continue to function simply by virtue of their logical and emotional mandate in the primary human situation, meaning the sexual relationship between men and women. And that is such a powerful comment in her book that I wanted to really draw that out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thanks, Maxine. Yeah, I I think that that to me, as you were talking about Camille Paglia and how she um, criticizes Millet for kind of throwing out this work of art, you know, of of mm-hmm. Lawrence and Mailer and Miller and stuff. And I thought it's not that she's throwing out the whole thing, although that that will develop. I mean, we could talk about cancel culture and saying like, oh, they're sexist. So nothing mm-hmm. that they've done is worth mm-hmm. anything. And they mm-hmm. should be, you know, erased from the the canon or whatever. Um, but I do, I, I, I appreciate that quote that you shared because I think for me, it's just that supremacy, male supremacy as a birthright or that mm-hmm. male centrality of just the assumption and that that man wants to use a woman's body in that way and that he has a right to, and nobody can, I mean, it's not even that nobody has a right to criticize it. It's like, it's not even on anyone's radar that it would be criticized. It just is, it is the the central experience is this primal sexual predatory sexual experience so yeah anyway thanks for thanks for bringing that to the forefront yeah and it, and it, and especially the right assuming the right that mm-hmm. men have the right to to abuse and violate women's bodies that it's somehow right. a birthright yeah yes and unassailable yeah so in our first episode on this book, in part one, I mentioned that um, when I took that class my freshman year of college on critical theory, and there was a chapter in my book on feminist critique, I mentioned that I might have Kate Millett to thank for that chapter, right, as being like a valid prism through which to approach a text. Is that right, Maxine? Did this? Am I right in thinking that it was this book that really opened up a path for feminist literary criticism? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, in fact, Sexual Politics has been called the first book of academic feminist literary criticism. Hmm. Because Kate engaged literary texts critically through a radical feminist reading or lens. So yeah, she pioneered and launched uh, feminist uh, critique and readings of literary texts because she'd studied literary criticism and, and English and and but she also applied her feminist tools and lenses that she was learning, both in life as a woman and from other women in the movement and and reading their works like Simone de Beauvoir who who greatly influenced her. So Millet pioneered the the use of uh, a critical feminist lens when reading literary texts and combining those two lenses, the, the literary critical and the feminist. So now today, feminist readings of literary texts and feminist critical theory are major, you know, 
areas of focus and work and departments and courses and areas of specialization in uh, in academia that that feminists and um, and others study in school mm. in in both literature programs, English programs, and gender studies and and other um, other fields as well. Philosophy, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a mainstay now. That's that's amazing. That's so great. Okay, the first passage that I want to talk about from Millet is um, in the part of the book where she's kind of talking about the historical timeline and how patriarchy has functioned in society. So she says this, quote, What goes largely unexamined, often even unacknowledged, yet is institutionalized nonetheless, in our social order, is the birthright priority whereby males rule females. Through this system, a most ingenious form of interior colonization has been achieved. It is one which tends, moreover, to be sturdier than any form of segregation and more rigorous than class stratification, more uniform, certainly more enduring. However muted its present appearance may be, sexual dominion obtains nevertheless as perhaps the most pervasive ideology of our culture and provides its most fundamental concept of power. This is so because our society, like all other historical civilizations, is a patriarchy. The fact is evident at once if one recalls that the military, industry, technology, universities, science, political office, and finance, in short, every avenue of power within the society, including the coercive force of the police, is entirely in male hands. As the essence of politics is power. Such realization cannot fail to carry impact. What lingers of supernatural authority, the deity, his ministry, together with the ethics and values, the philosophy of art, of our culture, its very civilization, as T.S. Eliot once observed, is of male manufacture. End of quote. So she just kind of spells it out there, right? I'm that, that, patriarchy pervades and and is the structure of all aspects of society and i just wanted to bring to the foreground two terms from that passage that really struck me one was quote unquote interior colonization um, and we alluded to this on our episode on killing the angel in the house um, with virginia wolf and and when she was addressing those women in 1931 and telling them you know, the laws have changed. You have the right to vote now. You can pursue a professional career. But she said, you know, one of the one of the battles that remains is the interior battle because women are so haunted by voices still telling them that they can't do it. It makes me think of Lily Briscoe in um, To the Lighthouse, that Lily Briscoe is this character that is a painter. And she just, as she's painting, she just hears men's voices saying, women can't paint, women can't write. Um, and so I, I think of that interior colonization that, that has happened throughout centuries and millennia in patriarchal constructs. And um, Millet uses an example where she, she cites a study where a bunch of uh, women college students were asked to respond to an essay. And on half of the essays, the author's name was John McKay. And on the other half of the essays that were distributed to, the, to these women students, the author was um, cited as Joan McKay. And they had to make an assessment of what they thought of this author's arguments based on this essay. And their assessments of John's essay were that he was a brilliant thinker. 
And the assessment of Joan's essay was that she was unimpressive. And the essays were identical. The only thing that was um, different was just one was written. They thought that one was written by a man and the other half thought that it was written by a woman. And their their response to it was completely different. And they felt that that it when it was a wo- woman author, that it was inferior thinking. So that's an example of that interior colonization of patriarchy. And then the other phrase that really stood out to me from that quote was that all of these things are of male manufacture. And our family, um, we love this book by Benjamin Zander called The Art of Possibility. And Benjamin Zander, um, one of his big um, premises in the book is that everything is invented. Everything at some point was just made up by somebody. And that helps us, you know, we teach our kids that to, to just think critically, think creatively. Remember that you don't have to be bound by constructs. Just some random person made up everything that you see in the world. Everything's invented. And so Millet points out, yeah, everything was invented by a man, <laughs> like <laughs> by by male manufacturer. And uh, she later says, quote, under patriarchy, the female did not herself develop the symbols by which she is described. As both the primitive and the civilized worlds are male worlds, the ideas which shaped culture in regard to the female were also of male design, end quote. So those were some parts that really stood out to me from that passage. Yeah, I really agree. I was really glad that you targeted the interior colonization. That is such an important theoretical tool that she uses. And this was something I learned, of course, in women's studies in the 80s. That this, this again, this is how we get at that double bind that women are in, that they're enfolded within male perspective and discourse, and they have to somehow work their way out of it. Um, and so they have to undo first two levels, the interior colonization, where they are reinforcing and restating those male views of women within their own minds. They have to undo that first before they can start to undo the, the ways that male perspective has shaped um, social cultural institutions. And it, mm. it operates on two levels. It's an extremely important theoretical point that she names, you know, mm-hmm. and this is of course the project in um, the seventies feminism, uh, radical feminism, as I mentioned earlier, is to name, to articulate, describe what, what we hadn't even been able to describe or name before, you know, mm-hmm. these double binds, what, what are they? And that was huge uh, in, in the work of these women. And it was huge in helping me to be able to figure out what was wrong and what to do about it without encountering these feminist works. I could not have been able to even begin to undo the ways that patriarchy had constructed me and be able to address it. And and so I had to have the these theoretical tools and the naming that she does and the explanation to be able to even begin to undo the interior and then the exterior colonization. So, and then the other term, the male manufacturer, is really an interesting term because it's so true that male perspective has constructed and defined um, culture. 
in so many ways. I used to complain in the 80s, uh, because in the 70s, when I was the 70s feminist, I I took both home ec and woodshop. You know, in high school, I was Mm. trying to explore all Mm -hmm. the avenues. So I was the only girl in boys woodshop, right? And Mm -hmm. in 1974, 73. And yet I also took home ec because I wanted both skills, right? I I wanted to be a a whole person. But what I noticed when I learned construction and, and also, in addition to the sexist attitudes there, I noticed how male perspective and the male body had shaped and defined even the way that buildings and homes are constructed and mm. um, and the way that the homes are designed. I mean, it had, it had shaped the way society and culture is designed. But anyway, mm-hmm. that was just one example of this male manufacturer. I, I thought about that and how I complained about it and how I saw it everywhere. Um that yes, everything is invented, but unfortunately, men were doing more of the inventing than women mm-hmm. were doing. And so she really gets that. She gets it, she names it, she calls it out. And and so women didn't get women are bound by those constructs that were invented by men. And we have to undo those constructs and come up with our own and then try to help them find root and place in culture and society and language and literature. Um and, you know, along with that, Kate also says um, that sexual politics obtains consent through the socialization of both sexes. And this socialization is based on the needs and values of the dominant group and dictated by what its members cherish in themselves and find convenient in subordinates. So aggression, intelligence, force efficacy in the male and passivity, ignorance, docility, virtue, and ineffectuality in the female. These sex roles assign domestic service and attendance upon infants to the female and the rest of human achievement, interest, and ambition to the male. Mm -hmm. And this is a really powerful um, statement in, in a number of ways. Um, because she's on the one hand, and this is one of the things I like about her, she's acknowledging the construction of society. Society is socially constructed. Our roles are socially constructed. They need to be undone. They can be redone. But she's also citing a kind of essential biological basis here. So she's validating both the, the, the constructed view of society and gender and women and men, along with the kind of essential biological basis for a lot of that construction, that a lot of it does come from the differences between male and female bodies and how those bodies experience life and how they experience each other. And so she's, she's really dealing with both. She's not simply saying all of society is constructed. And so therefore you just have to reconstruct it. Mm-hmm. which which we're hearing a lot more now nowadays um she's saying no it's rooted in in physical sexual marital family relations and we have to deal with that we have to deal with both the constructed nature of of our identities and society and also the the essential biological um impact and and forces that also shape those constructions and that's a really important tension that leads to a whole other topic about feminism and radical feminism um, of the 60s and 70s that it embodied both tendencies 
which tend to be at odds and over the decades have become more at odds, that validate both equality and difference or addressing the constructed nature of society and identity as well as the essential physical, biological nature of it. And so what you find in 60s and 70s radical feminism and in radical feminism itself is that the feminism that wants to address the root, the causes of of our social and and cultural structures and institutions, that really focuses on the the constructed nature and the relativity and the, the ways in which men and women could be completely equal if we just addressed the, the ways that they're being constructed differently. But radical feminism also has this whole other major <laughs> side of it that, that addresses the ways that men and women are different in their bodies mm. and their perspectives and their physiology and their biology and their reproductive nature and their health issues and, and that we have to pay attention to that too. We can't throw that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's extremely central and primary. And so I love the fact that she calls it primary because mm-hmm. it is, she doesn't toss that out. And, and so she's bridging or straddling both, both sides of radical feminism that address both the constructed and the essential nature of women's um, lives and, and status and situation. Uh, and I really, um, as a feminist theorist and and um, a feminist historian and writer, I do the same thing. I straddle both. I use both. I validate both. Um, I, I, I'm adamant that you can't erase or toss out either the constructionist um, view of identity and and status at, or the the uh, biological essential nature of of so much of who we are and and what we do. Okay, yeah, that reminds me exactly of what um, one of the next points that we were going to talk about, Maxine, um, that that conversation, and my husband and I talk about this all the time, of what's natural and what is constructed in society. And, And it always reminds me of John Stuart Mill saying, we don't know, because there have been so many limiting factors um, placed upon women, we actually don't even know what the nature of woman is, and and that actually comes up in in many texts in, um, that we've mm-hmm. read for the podcast. That we don't really know what what gendered uh, what the nature of gender is because society has meddled so much and in constricting us. But there's a passage that Millet um, writes that has to do with what you just said. She says. Um, the heavier musculature of the male, a secondary sexual characteristic and common among mammals, is biological in origin, but is also culturally encouraged through breeding, diet, and exercise. Yet it is hardly an adequate category on which to base political relations within civilization. Male supremacy, like other political creeds, does not finally reside in physical strength, but in the acceptance of a value system which is not biological. Superior physical strength is not a factor in political relations like those of race and class. Civilization has always been able to substitute other methods, technology, weaponry, knowledge, for those of physical strength, and contemporary civilization has no further need of it. So I think basically what she's saying here is that even if this system was originally built on nature, right, with men being bigger and stronger, 
that in a society that's it's it is made irrelevant when you look at for example if you look at dominant men throughout history there's like the legendary um napoleon who was short even though it turns out maybe he wasn't as short as people thought for a long time but but um the point being that physical size doesn't seem to matter much right in in very dominant men it's the social structure that privileges males and encourages those dominator characteristics as being masculine and then prizes those all masculine characteristics. And then it, it disqualifies females right out of the gate just by virtue of, of them being females. Mm -hmm. But then this was interesting to me because she does talk about that, that like, we don't really need to factor in males, bigger, stronger physical bodies anymore because we live in, a civilization with laws and and stuff and we use technology now and we use scholarship and we use all of these you know different abilities rather than physical characteristics but then she says and i'm going to quote her again quote we are not accustomed to associate patriarchy with force so perfect is its system of socialization so complete the general assent to its values so long and so universally has it prevailed in human society that it scarcely seems to require violent implementation. Customarily, we view its brutalities in the past as exotic or primitive custom. Those of the present are regarded as the product of individual deviance confined to pathological or exceptional behavior and without general import. And yet... Just as under other total ideologies, racism and colonialism are somewhat analogous in this respect, control in patriarchal society would be imperfect, even inoperable, unless it had the rule of force to rely upon, both in emergencies and as an ever-present instrument of intimidation, end quote. So in that respect, she's saying, you know, actually, we don't rely on physical force anymore and we don't need to so it's not that relevant but then in this quote she's saying but there's always the threat of it and actually patriarchy wouldn't work if the dominant caste in the caste system were smaller like because <laughs> you you couldn't have that you know constant underlying fear that well if it came down to it actually the the dominant caste could beat me up or kill me. It reminds me of that that famous quote by Margaret Atwood, the author who wrote um, The Handmaid's Tale, and she said, "Men are af men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them." And just that that differential of the power, right? That a woman just I think always I don't know about you, but I when I read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, his book Blink however long ago, 15 years ago or something, and about the constant um, information that our brains are subconsciously taking in that are sizing up people that we're talking to. I really read that. I remember feeling like, oh, wow, as women, we are constantly on some level, on some very primal level aware of like, that person could rape me, that person could kill me. Like that's just always a reality. And so mm -hmm. I do kind of mm -hmm. tend to agree that that patriarchy, I don't know that it would have been so effective if men hadn't been so much bigger and stronger. And that there is, I mean, it's certainly at least in marriages, in intimate relationships, mm -hmm. that that there is just that awareness of like, it's not a level playing field because a woman always kind of has that primal sense of like, I, I do have to do it this 
person says, because I'm powerless. I'm very, very vulnerable in these relationships. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Know. No, that's, that's so well articulated and laid out. That's, a, that's exactly what she does. It's how she deals with both realities in her mm-hmm. work, the, the reality of the constructed nature of society and culture and identity, but at the same time, the biological reality underpinning it. Um, mm-hmm. So she sees sexual relations as utterly embedded in politics mm-hmm. and social order and institutions. And, and that she sees politics as essentially sexual. I mean, this is the mm-hmm. meaning of the title of her book, Sexual Politics. Politics are essentially sexual. Mm. Okay, right there, she's saying that even, well, even democracies are male hegemonies, but she's saying that the sexual relationship and nature is, is at the root, Mm. you know, the, the underlying foundation of these things and that you can't get away from it. You can't ignore it. It's, it's still there and it stays with us. Mm -hmm. And so we have to see the sexual roots of politics in order to address patriarchy and sexism and oppression. Mm-hmm. And not just sexual politics, because when I read it, I, I thought like sexual politics, like there are biological differences between male and female. There, there, you know, the difference between the sexes, but she's talking about actual, I mean, again, the fact that she is quoting at length these passages where men are raping and murdering women. Mm-hmm. It's not just that there are two different sexes, you know, the, right. that binary or whatever, but it's like, no, men rape and murder women. And and the, the artists in our culture that we um, admire and hold up as our great artists write about it without even thinking anything's wrong with it, that men rape and murder women. I mean, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So she's saying that the foundational power of patriarchy historically was biological, mm-hmm. the physical mm-hmm. power of men over women. And she's also saying that even though that primitive society and brute force has been replaced by mm-hmm. social, economic, cultural systems in modern society, that biological underpinning of sex relations still inhabits our cultural systems and relations, even if it's mostly a social construct. Yeah. So it's a very important paradoxical point that she's making. Mm-hmm. So her focus and critique of, of sexism and sexual objectification of women and their bodies by males directly confronts that surviving biological um, brute force mm-hmm. that underlies these institutions. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a brilliant move. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, she's, she's not willing to, to ignore or erase the biological um, dimension of these things. She's, she's addressing it head on, but she, but, but at the same time, she, she sees the need to, to deal with, with both factors the arbitrary construction by men of society and also the, the biological inherent kind of um, embedded sexual nature that's there as well. Mm-hmm. I have to just say, I have to just throw in too. I mean, if we're going to acknowledge that, that males in general have such a physical advantage and that those 
um, that that you know undercurrent of the the threat of violence that we experience is there. It also <laughs> to me it seems like really ironic then that people would argue and say like, well that's nature, and so it follows that men should also have their hands on the levers of all of the social constructions because it, it seems to me that if anybody would have their hands on the levers. It would need to be the women in order to keep that male physical power in check. If you're if you're going to argue for a just society, mm-hmm. to me, it just like does not even make sense to me that people would say, and therefore men need to be in you know dominating politics, dominating religion, doc- dominating academia and technology, and like, uh, no, <laughs> I mean it should be the ones that actually have the physical disadvantage if there were to be you know, a social construct that ensured the protection of all members of society it would need to be the vulnerable ones. But we don't need to yeah. go farther into that. But it just seemed You're, actually ridiculous to me to make that argument. Yeah, you would think so. Nature. So that, yeah, so that traditionalists um, who, who really value the, the stereotypic constructed gendered roles between men and women is very different with men. Men is stronger and protector and women is weaker, independent. You, you would think that those people, like you say, would, um, would, would somehow value placing women, you know, mm-hmm. if, if women are more nurturing and more empathetic and less violent. And, you know, you would think that those same people would want to put women in charge of a whole lot of things, like you right. said. Right. But it's in, it's interesting also just to note that, again, how we can't throw out biology, but we also have to really take hold of the constructed nature and potential of human beings and bodies, um, is that, you know, of course, today, you know, queer theory and trans theory and activism and medical science and, and all of that is showing us that, you know, bodies can morph tremendously and that there's great diversity within the categories of male and female bodies. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of men who maybe are normal, um, have, have sort of normal biology, reproductive, genetic, um, chromosomal, you know, male characteristics but yet who, who actually may be more feminine and, and, right. and physically weaker than, than women. There are plenty of women with, with typical, not atypical, but typical genetic and chromosomal um, qualities and, you know, sex characteristics who are, who are much stronger, bigger than, than a lot of men. And so there's that diversity within the genders. But at the same time, you look at the statistics on crime and violent crime and who's committing violent crime. Right. And it's something like 90 to 95% is men. Mm-hmm. Or even so, more, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, 96%. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It might be 96%. So, so there is a biological, hormonal, and, and socially constructed. Obviously, right. you know, social right. constructionists will argue that, that violent men were, were, were abused as children and, and, and were, were, um, socialized that way. And that's a huge part of it, mm-hmm. but I, it doesn't explain such a high percentage of violent crime being committed by men. So this of course helps to explain why Kate Millett focuses on patriarchy's chief institution as being it in the family. The family is both a mirror of, and a connection with the larger society, a patriarchal unit within a patriarchal whole mediating between the individual and the social structure 
the family effects control and conformity where political and other authorities are insufficient. Serving as an agent of the larger society, the family not only encourages its own members to adjust and conform, but acts as a unit in that government of the patriarchal state, which rules its citizens through its family heads. Even in patriarchal societies where they are granted legal citizenship, women tend to be ruled through the family alone and have little to no formal relation to the state. Of course, she wrote this in 1970 and some things have changed since then, but yeah. anyway. Definitely some things have changed in our country and in and other countries they're very much the same as they've always been. But I thought of when I read that passage, I thought of Beauvoir. There's just that that little piece in the second sex where she talks about there's just this image that stayed in my mind of the husband going out to political meetings while the wife stays home with the kids and she's like praying the rosary at home and just living out her life, making sure that she doesn't break any rules so that she can go to heaven. And when, um, yeah, when Millet talks about like that, the, the kind of the fundamental unit of patriarchy is the family and the woman doesn't even really interact with the state that much. She just interacts with her husband and it's like kind of a manageable bite size patriarchal unit so so that the state doesn't have to monitor and surveil every woman it just happens you know on the smaller scale with it, between husband and wife and the wife just kind of stays at home and does her thing and she's quite effectively subdued that way mm-hmm. um, yeah it's, it's internalized yeah right right that interior yeah. colonization yeah. again right yeah um and she says um if I can read that one more one more thing that Millet says on that topic is she says the chief contribution of the family and patriarchy is the socializ- socialization of the young, largely through the example and admonition of their parents. So I mean, we could do several episodes, you and I, on <laughs> on our own faith tradition, right? And and the right. The socialization of the young from the example of their parents. But I just thought of, you know. In, in our faith tradition, our common faith tradition of Mormonism, there's um, a lot of singing that goes on in our, our children's meetings every Sunday. And there's one song that was like a beautiful song. I used to be the pianist for the children's group. And so all four of my kids would sing this song. I would play the piano with all of our community's children. And I'm just going to read the words. A father's place is to preside, provide to love and teach the gospel to his children. A father leads in family prayer to share their love for father in heaven. A mother's purpose is to care, prepare, to nurture, and to strengthen all her children. She teaches children to obey, to pray, to love, and serve in the family. And I just thought, yep, there's that little um, piece of patriarchy where the father presides and the mother teaches her children to obey. And um, Millet goes on and on this topic, she says, quote, while we may niggle over the balance of authority between the personalities of various households, one must remember that the entire culture supports masculine authority in all areas of life and outside of the home permits the female none at all, end quote. And I even thought like, it's even more than that. It's, a, I mean, she says outside of the home doesn't permit the female. And I, I know there are marriages where the the wife has a lot of a lot of clout, a lot of power in decision making and whatever. And there are very egalitarian 
even Mormon and, you know, Southern Baptist and Muslim friends that I have, like it, it very much, and she acknowledges this, it very much does depend on the personalities of the, the partners. However, structurally, even in the home, I feel like I know families, I know couples where the man can still pull that card of saying, I am the man of the house. If it comes down to it, even if he doesn't do it very often, or even if he never chooses to, that still is seen as his right. And and a woman, and this is how you know it's structural and not just personality, a woman could never, I mean, it would just be silly. A woman couldn't say, well, I hate to have to, to do this, but I'm the woman of the house. And so based on my authority as a woman, I'm sorry, but I'm putting my foot down. That just does, <laughs> like, it doesn't even exist, right? Yes. And it's interesting to me, you know, watching this evolution of sex and, and family relations over the last 40 years and feminism and gender and identity and marital relations, how, how so much has changed so that, you know, it's pretty mainstream to be able to create your own um, way of dividing work and your own roles and, and, and that they're not, you know, specified or locked in. And, and yet it's interesting how often you still do see uh, plenty of couples who take or opt, even though they have the choice of going, you know, any direction they want, they're still opting for um, a traditional s- arrangement where the husband is working, making the primary income and the wife is staying home with, with especially babies and, and young children. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's still a value in that, that people are finding through their own choice through the right. way that they they look at it, yeah, you know, through parenting. But there's also the effect of culture, religious culture and family culture. So the other factor is that people also gravitate toward their own family culture and also their mm-hmm. religious culture as well. But again, it's another example of how now that the options are wide open for parenting any way you want and sharing duties and and not identifying in any stereotypic role and and also gay and trans marriages. It's just interesting how often the, the gendered roles still crop up um, by preference or choice of couples, which I just find really interesting. It is, it is interesting. And again, it's impossible to know how much of our bias and, and our, even our desires comes from, you know, nature versus nurture. It's just impossible to know. But I I've said before, I mean, as you know, I have stayed home the my the whole time raising mm-hmm. my children. And I do, I mean, even despite how I was raised, like separate from how I was raised, I do believe my nature is quite nurturing. I um, So I may have made the exact same choice. I may have um, mm-hmm. to stay home with my kids, especially while they were little. There's so much joy to be had in in love, in family life. I just didn't feel like I had a choice. And so that that's what makes the difference to me is if I had had all the choices and like all of the pros and cons laid out for me, like, well, it's going to be hard to try to do this part time and that part time. And what's your husband going to do? Totally would have been hard, but I would have liked to have made that choice as an adult sovereign human being with yeah. my adult sovereign <laughs> partner <laughs> right. and said like, yeah, we get it. There's pros and cons to everything, but it, it's, it's that I didn't have the choice that I don't like. It's not that I didn't yeah. enjoy nurturing my children. Cause I like, I like taking care of people. I actually do happen to like it. So yeah. Yeah. And I agree the, with you. Well, and that's the crucial issue that 
radical feminism of the 70s was was addressing and the 80s uh even though tensions emerged uh, between women who were focused on equality and erasing those differences and women who were saying wait as a woman i want the right to to yeah. advocate advocate this this role or uh, this female identified role and um and so it was about women being self-defining having the right to define for themselves how feminine or masculine they were, how, how much they wanted to be away from mothering and reproduction and, and caring for children versus how much they wanted to, to focus on that. And, and, and that was really, that was the real intent was that freedom of self-definition and all the options to have all the options. But then you see, you know, in the eighties, uh, all of these tensions coming back around that regarding, well, wait a second, are we taking on too much? We really can't have it all. Mm, and then mm. tensions, you know, between um, whether that's valid or not to, to, to say that, that um, female roles or female identity is, is a definite essential thing. And, mm -hmm. and so it gets a lot more complicated in, in the next decades in the eighties and the nineties. Well, certainly. And I would say, too, I mean, another passage that I had thought to highlight from Millet is, I mean, I'll be eager to hear what you think of this, because there is that strain, as I'm understanding it, there is a kind of a streak within radical feminism, or maybe even more of a streak. I mean, maybe it is one of the central tenets, at least in some radical feminist work, where it really truly is a reimagining of what a family should look like and even kind of, you know, an ideological rejection of the traditional family um, and not necessarily just saying, well, do whatever works for you and you should have a choice, but rather like, no, patriarchal families should be abolished. And that's, of course, where the fear comes from, right? Mm -hmm. At least in our religious mm -hmm. tradition and right. in anyone, you know, conservative religions, but even like, as you said, that there's a, there a lot of... Um, a lot of people, even in the secular world, who would say, wait a second, I, is there something wrong with me that I want to grow up, get married and have children and be with my babies when they're little or whatever? And and they feel very threatened by radical feminism saying that's oppressive. All marriage is oppressive. All families are just units of perpetuating the patriarchy. Right. And I do want to read this passage mm -hmm. where Millet um kind of lays out what she's proposing. So here are some direct quotes from Millet. She says, one, a sexual revolution would require, perhaps first of all, an end of traditional sexual inhibitions and taboos, particularly those that most threaten patriarchal monogamous marriage, homosexuality, illegitimacy, adolescent, pre- and extramarital sexuality, the goal of revolution would be a permissive single standard of sexual freedom. Um, so I know that there would be a lot of people I know that would be like, whoa, hold, <laughs> like, right. stop the train. Like, that's too far, right? Yeah. But that's what she's advocating for. Um, another thing she says is, second, the re-examination of the traits categorized as masculine and feminine with a reassessment of their human desirability, the violence encouraged as virile, the excessive passivity defined as feminine, proving useless in either sex. 
thinking if I'm emphasizing those words correctly, the excessive passivity defined as feminine, proving useless in either sex, the efficiency and intellectuality of the masculine temperament, the tenderness and consideration associated with the feminine recommending themselves as appropriate to both sexes. Okay, so there, I mean, we've talked about this in a bunch of other texts where she's saying there should be just positive traits and negative traits and they shouldn't be gendered. And then third, one another thing that she advocates is, quote, the collective professionalization and consequent improvement of the care of the young. Marriage might generally be replaced by voluntary association if such is desired. Were a sexual revolution completed, the problem of overpopulation might cease to be the insoluble dilemma it now appears. End quote. Okay, so, and there, I mean, that's where you're, at least, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Maxine, but I'm getting a lot of free love vibes there and like <laughs> hippie communes and like <laughs> right. just, you know, we love who we love. There aren't limits. There aren't these, you know, artificial, arbitrary boundaries constructed by, you know, puritanical prude people who, you know, who would uh, limit normal, natural sexuality. And then, of course, people will conceive children that way. And then it should be, quote, collective and professionalized and like just have a commune and whoever wants to take care of the kids will take care of the kids. But that is definitely not a traditional family model. Mm-hmm. Um, am I reading that correctly, that that's what she's advocating for? Well, y- yeah, yes and no. I mean, what she's what she's doing in the book is, as, as she sort of talks about earlier and the other women are, are, are doing, is to try to undo you know, how, you know, um, explore, name, describe, envision the undoing of all limits imposed on women and their bodies. And so these women sort of, you know, feel that if we're going to undo the, the male projections and the, the limitations and, you know, the, the, all of these impositions and limits on female bodies and psyches and lives, we've got to undo them all. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, where do you draw the line? You've just got to undo them all. So on the one hand, she and others like her are, you know, Firestone and, and even, even, um, de Beauvoir in some ways, um, Mm -hmm. they're, they're saying, let's, let's just undo all these constructions. And that's a really important focus and and avenue of of what she's doing and what radical feminism is doing but at the same time you know they're all each in their own way still wanting to argue for validating and taking seriously women's experience in a body Mm. women's reality as a female body and so these two tensions coexist and they coexist in the focus of of liberal feminism, which wanted to, you know, give women equality and cultural feminism that wanted to speak a female perspective. And also the, these are the two major, although there are several different kinds of feminism happening in radical feminism. I mean, there's lesbian separate, radical lesbian separatism, you know, which goes even Mm -hmm. further and says, women are so different. Men and women are like a different species. We don't even want to work with, be with, live with men. You know, so mm-hmm. that's part of radical feminism on the extreme end that that says no, men if, men and women are so different. Men are men are animals; they're brutes. You know, <laughs> we don't want anything to do with them. I mean, yeah. Sonia Johnson took took that position for for quite a long time. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
all of those feminisms are coexisting and trying to work together in radical feminism of the the seventies. And, and what I really see her doing, even though she leans more towards saying this is all constructed, let's just deconstruct it. She's also very much in, as I said earlier, in all of her work, focusing on sexual relations and marriage as the root, the underlying root of, of all of these oppressions and male violence toward women. And, you know, that sexual relationship between male and female bodies as being so central and primary that that's a way of, of still reinforcing that we can't, we don't get away from it. We can't throw it all out. It's still mm-hmm. pretty central. So she's, I see her doing both, you know, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. why I like her. I like that she's doing both. Mm-hmm. I think, I think we have to do both, you know, I think it's important to recognize all of the feminisms that are in mm-hmm. radical feminism and all of the feminisms that are in feminism, feminist history and tr- mm-hmm. and, and theory. I mean, it's really important to study them all and understand how they arose and why. Why did Marxist and socialist feminism arise? Well, to address the situation of women in, in, in economics and, um, and class. And, you know, why did psychoanalytic feminism arise? Well, to address the situation of women in, you know, the, the field of psychology and, and Freud's work and Jung's work and, and the sexism and how psychology itself was constructed by male perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, why did, um, why did radif- radical feminism arise as we, desc- as I described earlier, uh, largely a response to the sexism of the new left men, you know? Mm. So each of these feminisms are responding to a sp- specific context and situation that is real that women find Mm -hmm. themselves in. And each Mm -hmm. feminism is addressing the disempowerment of women and their definition by men or by religion or whatever. And they're addressing the problem in that specific scenario or context and how to deal with that specific context. And, and so these different feminisms develop. Um, And so, you know, you see all of those feminisms, for example, in the women's studies program, we, we studied all of them and we debated these, these very issues. We debated the question that you posed from, um, Millet's work, you know, well, mm-hmm. what are, what are feminists saying? And what do we really want? Do we want to throw out everything mm-hmm. or do we mm-hmm. want to preserve some things or what are we trying to do here? You know, <laughs> those, the, those, uh, debates and ideas were heavily debated and discussed and read in the women's studies program at the U of U in the 1980s Mm. and in other women's studies programs. And those are the, the questions. These women in the sixties and seventies were brave because they were willing to talk about it, unpack it, uh, really just imagine all of the possible Mm. avenues and, and possibilities and potential for human beings, Mm. men and women and relationships and marriage and sexual relations. So they, they had to do that, you know, and in, in order to even start to figure out what do we want? What are we doing? You kind of have to explore all of the options. You you've got Mm -hmm. to analyze everything to its ultimate conclusion. If you, especially if you're a scholar or an academic, you know, you analyze it to death, right. Mm -hmm. And then you reanalyze it and then you reanalyze how other people analyzed it. And, um, so all of these things are, are really important topics and, Mm. and for all of us to consider. Well, that brings us to the end of these episodes, Maxine. And um, 
before we close out, I just want to ask if you have any like takeaways or like a major theme that you want to leave with listeners as we, as we wrap up. You know, gosh, when I think about the big takeaways from Millet, I've probably expressed them. Um, but I, I think her book is really watershed in launching the radical feminism and its specific goals. And, and she lived it and wrote it. She was doing it and describing it at the same time. And that's, that's the paradox, the double duty that feminists find themselves in and have always found themselves in. So a big takeaway is, um, and this is what I learned from all of those other feminists. Um, don't, don't feel weird. Don't feel guilt. Don't punish yourself. Don't feel like you're, you're not valid or real just because you're having to invent your voice and your discourse as you're trying to unpack the things that are constructing you. This is what we all had to do. So you're not alone and it's very real and it's very necessary and be brave and unpack the, the forces and the, the discourses that have defined you and know that you have a right as a human being, whether you're male or female, to examine those and unpack them. And that's a huge takeaway from her book that gave me tremendous um, she and all of the other feminists like her gave me tremendous sense of validity and courage and confidence to be able to find myself and have the freedom to figure out or explore who I might be and, and find my voice. And at the same time, and I think this is crucial and this is something I've tried to do in my work from the seventies onward to really um, validate and urge the, the right of human beings to decide that for themselves, to be self-defining and to know that if you do really feel very female identified and you want to have children and stay home with them, there's no need to apologize. There's no need to try to defend that. Um, be who you are. <laughs> And know that you have the right to decide that for yourself. That decision belongs to you. And whatever you're able to do with your own physiology and biology and inherited traits and your, your training and your family situation and your class situation and your economic limitations, just, just know that, that you deserve that freedom and that right, even though you have all these other forces like class and money and, and color and um, income that, that profoundly shape and affect you. And so at the same time, I, I always try to urge, and, and I think this is an important takeaway from her book, that you're not entirely free. You're not entirely able to just imagine who you want to be and become that. You, you are a product of larger forces and other forces, and you have to deal with those. And... Um, so yeah, it's, it's both. I think those are both important takeaways. Powerful. Maxine, I cannot thank you enough for your insight and your wisdom. Um, I'm so, so grateful to have had you here for both of these episodes and so grateful that we read this book. And like I said, so grateful that I read it with you. 
Um, so thank you for guiding me through it and, um, and having these conversations with me. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. This was so fun. And you did a fabulous job of, uh, exploring the book and, and teasing out crucial bits and pieces of it. We, it's a really dense book and lots of other people might address different parts or different issues, but I, I really love the tensions that you identified and pulled out. It's, I think your approach to it worked really well. Oh, thanks. I certainly, I would say this was the hardest book for me not to understand. It wasn't like I couldn't understand the words she was saying, but I just couldn't quite get the context. And that is definitely like, that's one of the many really valuable things that you brought. So um, yeah, what a journey. This was kind of a journey for me. So I'm, I'm super grateful. Thanks, Maxine, for being sure. here. And in history, his historiography, we, we, we tend to see context is huge. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> context sure is huge. Is. It's huge. It is. It's really yeah. important to know the context of how something uh, emerged and why and what it's addressing yeah. in its own time, rather yeah. than trying to interpret it from our time unless we can understand the historical context and the forces within, within which people are functioning and operating and responding, we don't really understand what they're doing. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's why I've constructed the podcast the way I have as being chronological and kind of one text building on another. And so, yeah, it has been oh, such a useful exercise. So, and that actually leads us into the next book that we'll be discussing, actually, because next week um, on our Breaking Down Patri- Patriarchy episode, we'll be discussing another book from 1970, which is Our Bodies, Ourselves. Um, this book was published by the Boston Women's Health Collective, and it's been expanded um, in new editions over and over again. It's become a medical reference book. But initially, it was a hand-stapled pamphlet put together by just a group of women who were frustrated that women didn't understand their own bodies. They couldn't get access to information about their own bodies, um, about their own mental and emotional as well as physical health. And so this episode really represents a revolutionary act of women claiming what is their own because really what is your own, if not your own body, right? So exactly. And I just have to, I have to toss in that. I love the fact that you're following Millet's sexual politics, which looks at the construction of, of sex with our bodies ourselves, which looks at the, the primary (laughs) uh, nature of, of the body. Yeah. So that really illustrates that tension that you've got this other side of radical feminism that is focusing on, our bodies and, Mm -hmm. and our bodies need to be just as central and valid as male bodies. And, and so it's, that's a, it's such an important book for uh, expressing that kind of essentialist side of radical feminism. I've actually already read the book and it blew my mind. (laughs) I had never (laughs) read it before. So I'm really, really excited for listeners to, um, to read it or at least read about it. Um, And then we'll have a great discussion about it. So we'll invite everyone to join us for that conversation next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 